So, how's it going? I was just telling Rob about how awful my weekend was. Yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, dude, that sounded so lame. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. That's rich. No, I was telling him just, it was an awesome weekend, man. Thank you for your hospitality and hosting me. Don't say it, Rob. <laughs> Don't say it. Um, Sounds like you guys broed pretty hard. We broed out. It was important. We needed to bro out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Mike came down Friday night after kind of a heavy day. Um, did you Did you tell Rob about the whole situation? No, no, I didn't. We had no. a we had a young lady pass away. Oh from, man, from our youth Sorry. group, sixteen year old. She was in a car crash. Oh gosh, pretty big part of our youth group. So we had a prayer service Friday night, which uh, all pretty much all Friday was dealing with it. We went out to the accident site and stuff and got together this, we just did like a holy hour. It was, it was nice. It was kind of like night fever. That was my inspiration for it where I put like altar candles by the aisles and just had people like preached a short homily and then put some P and W on and had people light little tea lights and put them in front of the altar. Yeah. uh, Yeah. with, With pictures of the girl. And it was, it was pretty brutal because her, her dad and her older brother came and uh, they were just, yeah, in shock. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Dang, man. I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, I was too. I was very sorry yeah. to hear that. It's kind, of, it's kind of unbelievable, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Because you think of youth as just this unlimited potential. There's something, something not right about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, especially that age, it's like the, the thing I was thinking was not so much all the future that was kind of like abruptly no longer there for this person and her family and everything, but also all of like the 16 years of life, like all of this mm-hmm. investment in a person and love and, you know, it's like more painful that they lived that like I wonder if because people used to lose children like crazy. My mom does this genealogy work, uh, and people were just losing baby after baby in like the nineteen you know early nineteen hundreds and stuff like that, and they just had tons mm. and tons of children. It's something about a a teenager. Actually, I just finished uh, Cather Willa Cather's book, O Pioneers, and mm. uh, I don't want to spoil it, but something similar happens like the guy's like in his twenties or something like that. And he's just like the darling of the family. And, uh, like the one guy that went to college and everybody loves him and something tragic happens. And it's similarly heartbreaking because here was this person that you put all this hope into and all this investment into, um, you realize no man is an Island, you know, everybody's connected to everybody else. And, Yeah, that's what my goal was just to like, my thinking was the symbolism of putting the candles in front of her, in front of Jesus was like, 
you can either have things taken from you or you can choose to give them away, you know, including the most precious things like a life or a loved one. Hmm. You know what I mean? That, that was just my intuition. Like what needs to happen here is we need to give her away to God, you know, instead of feeling bitter that he took her from us. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely, I think that's the right thought. It's just massively challenging to actually do. Right. Um, and it, what it's not going to happen in a holy hour. But. Right, right, right. Sure. I thought that um, <clears throat> the retired priest, Father George, um, I thought he had some pretty cool stuff to say about it. Just he came in in the evening and, mm. and was just kind of giving his thoughts. He popped in very quickly. And one of the things he said was, um, that he thought it was an important moment for the other kids who were there mm -hmm. because it, it was a teaching moment in the, in the sense that they saw that they aren't an island, that we care about you all here. You're not just members moving in and out of this parish, but like if something happens to you, this is what we do for our people. This is how much we care for our kids. This is how much we care for our families. Um, like, yeah, so it was a it was a teaching display of love and community for real community there within your parish that I, I'm sure it was powerful for the kids to see. Um, like you belong to us and we're going to take care of you no matter what. Hmm. Yeah. Like you all of you matter. We, right. If something happens to you. We don't just keep playing soccer. Right. We we stop and we pray for you. and You're important. Yeah. I mean that would be very impactful as a teenager, to because um, not every not every kid has that that sense of belonging, that sense of um, people actually care for me, people pay attention to me, people know I exist and care about me. Mm -hmm. um, especially in high school, like you're going through a lot of those angsty type thoughts and questions, and then to have the church and to have your other friends gather around and show you that much support and prayer and and love, um, yeah. Yeah, and to say, hey, sometimes in life you don't eat pizza and play soccer and have a normal teen night. There are nights where you mourn, and they, I don't know, it's a full expression of life there, mm -hmm. not a happy one. Yeah, I did uh, have this feeling of like, you know, some of these kids are pretty young. You, you know, my fatherly instinct is to guard them from it. You know, but at the same time, how does that make any sense if they know this person? You know. Maybe they weren't best friends with her. Maybe they were, she was a few years older than them. But uh, whether you're in sixth grade or tenth grade, um, this is the reality. And I, and I also I've I've been kind of sad about the whole like reading about Puerto Rico this morning and how they're going to be mm. out of power for like three to six months or something like they just and no access to water because on that island like they pump their water with electricity and they don't have electricity just the the amount of suffering in the world that's what i preached about this morning with the light under the bushel basket was like people uh, in the some people in the world think it would be better if religious people just kept their faith to themselves but they don't know what they want because if if all that the world is all that we talk about is like the temporal imminent stuff that can be pretty depressing and if faithful Christians aren't out there showing people there's more to life than this, then how do you get through it, you know? Like, 
the world it's it's like the true salt of the earth light of the world thing like christians might be the conscience of the world and be annoying and i don't want to hear that i don't want to hear that god makes these demands on my life and and that you know my actions matter and i'm responsible to god and to other people for what i do so a christian just shut up but at the same time like by doing that you also eliminate the one possible source of hope in the world which is that we really can be saints and life can really have this transcendent meaning in spite of and sometimes because of great suffering does that make sense yeah it does sorry i just i'm kind of and, and not in a bad way just like was not expecting to talk about this <laughs> so uh i i just don't have like much to say on it. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just so sad about that girl. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, uh, one of the, a much different, um, obviously much, much different scenario. Um, when I went back to, um, the parish this past weekend, I preached and, uh, older gentleman who was like a daily mass guy over the summer and, Gotten to know him, I mean, just a little bit, like not super well, but enjoyed him a lot. And he found out he had cancer, like right at one of my last days, actually at the parish. And then um, he just passed away yesterday. Um, and so that was, you know, he was like very elderly and was kind of like surrounded by his family and it's still super sad. So I ran out there kind of on my way out of town coming back here and just like, total Holy Spirit on the timing of it. So pulled up like right to pull up to his house literally as they were opening the door to like take him the funeral home and come and we're taking him um, to the funeral home. And so all his family was there. And so got to say a prayer over his body and then just hung out like it was probably seriously 10 minutes or something with the family and said a prayer for him. And um, then the pastor, I'm, I'm sure was he, he had like stuff right after mass was going over. Um, later knew him pretty well as well um but anyway i just like yeah i mean it was a super i i'm still processing even that because it was a super beautiful like experience and just the whole thing of how it played out and um yeah just so thankful for my time like at that parish and to be in that spot and but dude i death just sucks like that's that's what i just walked away from that of like I mean, this this guy was successful and, like, legitimately had, I think, like, a very loving family, a very full life, like, you know, and suffered quite a bit, like, the cancer. But, I mean, you're talking two or three months, not to downplay that at all, and, and that's not what I'm saying, but it's, like, just live, like, a full, good life, you know? They were telling stories, like, just on his deathbed, like, the last couple of days, he was still, like, wisecracking and stuff like that, you know? And even then, even then, like, drew it up, last rites, whole deal. It was like, this is just, like, heart-wrenching, yeah. man. It just sucks. Um, and, yeah, I, I just, like, walked away. I was praying kind of on the drive back then. And I don't know, I don't know if this will make sense at all, but, yeah, freely share it, I guess, of, like, just this image of, like, a prism came to me, and it was just, like, kind of that question of like the suffering in the world and blah, blah. And that you were talking about Bisque of like, I just got to see like my own human experience. Like I got to see kind of like 
light shine through it in this like very particular angle for that 25 minutes that I was with, you know, um, his family and got to say a prayer over his body and everything. And, um, so I don't know, it's just so, uh, yeah. And it's, it still just sucked. And it was just like, that's just a, that's just like a glimmer of kind of like our communal experience as, as people, Christians or not, you know? Um, and I don't know, it still weighed on me a lot. Um, in, in that experience of like, uh, yeah, just like profoundly good, but still just like, oh gosh, this stinks. Mm. Like that situation was as good as it gets when it comes to death and it was still awful. Yeah. And it wasn't like it did. And it was, you know, unique in like many, many ways, you know, cause it's as, as every like death is, but, um, yeah, it just, it just sucks. Like it just, um, just, I mean, surrounded by people of the faith and like real believers and, Still just really hard. Yeah, really, really hard. Hmm. I'm listening to this podcast right now called Hardcore History. Have you guys ever listened to it? Nope. Nope. I guess it was pretty popular. I've heard it mentioned on some stuff I listen to. But it's just this guy doing like three-hour segments on major things in history and just kind of describing the background and everything. So the one I've been listening to is about World War One the lead up to it and the just like tinderbox of Europe at the time and how warfare had changed and they had since warfare had been kind of industrialized and with the modern advent of like the people's army, just like total war where you have millions of troops in the countries, you know, France has millions of soldiers. Germany has millions of soldiers so they can just fight big wars for a long time. Um, the reason that war was so deadly was because of all that stuff. And like, you know, the British had fought the Zulu and um, the Americans had fought the Spanish and Cuba. And like they had these little wars, but never had there been a big war with big armies like this. And nobody could really like France was riding in on horses and stuff with feathers in there helmets and they, they still were wearing like napoleon's uniforms they didn't expect what ended up happening was this total carnage of you know what did 11 million or 18 million people die like military people die throughout on both sides i think about that that amount of death you know even napoleon said that he he spent 30,000 lives every month when he was fighting his wars. And you take you take that just one death of someone you love. You know, and wasn't it in Jaber Crow that um some beloved kid from the small town went off was it, that that was like World War II time, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Jaber Crow was. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how like what was it the two things from the outside world that kept affecting the inside world was like the news and the war i don't remember that could be yeah yeah he capitalized n and w like the news and the war were these sort of like um mythical beasts that existed outside the town and 
they had some suspicion that they would eventually affect real life, even though they weren't, they weren't like real things to those people. What was real was their daily life and the barbershop and the farm and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. these things with the war and the news, like the things going on in the outside world are eventually going to upset their little uh, life. And uh, the first time that happened was when one, one of their boys, well, multiple, like several of them had to go off to war and one of the like favorite sons of the town died. You think about how many people die in, you know, unexpected ways or sometimes violent or unjust ways. And like, if you could feel the pain of it all, like God must feel, you know, loving us infinitely and seeing us suffer. I mean, it's harrowing. It's, it's beyond belief. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I, sometimes it makes me feel like a coward. But like when I think about those people going off to, hey, our country's going to war. I want to go die for my country. Like pretty much being guaranteed. Like the guys who signed up for World War II to go storm Normandy. I mean, your chances of everybody. We had that whole podcast on already dead, right? Acting, mm -hmm. like, acting like you're already dead. Yeah. And how that's kind of the attitude of the saint. That's just so dang scary. Even though, Even if you have a faith in an afterlife a faith in heaven and resurrection, it's still like, oh my gosh, how do you, how do you just jump into that? Um, and you look at history and there's just so many people who have done that. And Willa Cather in her book at the end, um, there's this great scene. So I don't know, you, you guys probably want to read this book eventually. Are you guys big Willa Cather fans? I, I like, have Death Comes to Your Archbishop, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, so. that's the only... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I read another book in high school, Force, Forced to Read It. Um, Is it My Antonia? My Antonia. Yeah, that's that's probably her best. I have that one, too. And she wrote Death Comes to Your Archbishop as well, right? Yeah. Yep. So yeah. she wasn't okay. Catholic. I read those two. But she yep. often has very Catholic themes. One of my, my favorite book by her is called <laughs> Shadows on the Rock. Um, it's about Quebec. Uh, I don't know what years, but a long time ago, um, when it was first settled as a, as a town, it's kind of on this mountainside and all winter long, the St. Lawrence Seaway is not passable. So they just have to survive through winter with what they've stored up and what they've canned. And, hmm. and then when the summer breaks, the ships come in and it's like this big celebration and they're back connected to France and to the outside world. But it just follows the story of a little girl and her dad who's a widower and a pharmacist in this little town of Quebec and the church looms large and there's an old holy bishop and a new kind of more worldly bishop. And I know it's, it, as she does, if you, if you, you've not read much of her, in other words, the two of you, no, just those two works. It's like the Wendell Berry rhythm. Nothing really happens, but you just, and Brideshead <laughs> to some extent, nothing really happens very dramatic in those books, but you're just mm. kind of taken into a world and into characters and their hearts and stuff like that um but in the book that i just finished i got willa cather's 40 classic works or something on kindle so i've just been reading through them uh the first one was about world war one it was called one of ours i think um but it's just farmers in nebraska she's from nebraska she's in the state capital in nebraska her bust uh she's one of the oh, cool classic authors and proud daughters of nebraska <clears throat> Uh, so ask Scott or Katie Dornboss. They're big fans. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Katie Dornboss got me a shout out. She got me 
I think my Antonia for my ordination, actually. So I still need to read it. And you still haven't read it. Wow. How long have you been a deacon? I'll get there. Don't worry. I, I, I was forced to read my Antonia in high school <laughs> and didn't want to so much that my mom had to just buy like a cassette player. Yes. That was it back in the day, cassette tapes. And we just listened to it together while we washed my truck. <laughs> I can remember that. Like I was dreading it. And so she just put it on and that was how she was okay with me having read, done like the, the mandatory s- summer reading. Oh, summer reading. Yeah. Yeah. Well, try it again, dude. It, that's a really good one. Is it? Yeah. Okay. But there's a scene. So the main characters in uh, O Pioneers are these Swedish immigrant farmers in Nebraska. And their father, John Bergson, is the immigrant who came from Sweden. Um, he had owed a bunch of people or he had lost a bunch of people's money in Sweden. And he was a conscientious guy. And he always had dreamed of making a life for himself in the United States and then making enough money to go back. But just, you know subsistence farming and trying to figure out when that that part of nebraska which is very sandy was first settled it was very hard to farm but his daughter alexandra is very forward looking and instead of leaving as most people do she buys up the land on the cheap from all the people who are kind of giving up on the this area of nebraska and sure enough by the time they're in middle age these kids are you know rich big huge landowners and they're Swedish, so they're not Catholic, but there's also Bohemians and French in the area, and they are Catholic, and they're kind of, they mix and mingle. Um, and to set the scene that I'm going to describe, this one, the one son, the youngest son, is in love with this married woman uh, who is Bohemian and Catholic, and he's just lovelorn and can't, can't be around her, but can't get away from her kind of thing. Uh, and she's, she's also... I mean, she's very conscientious and doesn't want to be an adulterer and keeps telling him, like, you need to go away and this isn't going to work. And she's totally not in love with her husband, who's a jerk and all this stuff. And anyways, one of his best friends, a Frenchman, dies and he's at the funeral mass. Actually, the funeral mass was the same day as the confirmation mass where the bishop had come into town. And it's such a cool one thing I like about these novels is that it's like a time capsule. And when the confirmation um happened basically everybody in town this little town is related to somebody being confirmed you know so the the whole town is at this one mass and the bishop is coming in on a horse and carriage and all Hmm. the men of the town go out to meet him on their horses and escort him into the town like from 10 miles away and um it's just cool like the and and behind the guy dying there's a mixture of sorrow and and joy and everything like that so anyway, he's sitting in the pew of the dead guy where he would have been sitting. Uh, this guy, Emil, Emil, the Swede, who's not Catholic. And the choir had been practicing for months for this confirmation mass because the bishop was coming. And during the Ave Maria, uh, like the best singer in town is just belting out the Ave Maria during the offertory. And he has this religious experience where I think he says something like he felt that he was finally free to love without sin. And that he was free to, to leave, like basically just knowing that he there was a love that he could totally throw himself into without fear of reproach, without, you know, and it was the love of God. Um, and then after that, something else happens, which, which I won't spoil. But um, 
I forgot why I started that story, but it just really struck me like, hey, I've had experiences like that. And I know you guys have too, um, but they cannot be manufactured. Uh, hmm. You know, and there's something about the Catholic liturgy too and about the sacraments that there's no amount of like, oh, we just need to, you know, see people in their suffering and, and be in solidarity and, and help the poor and blah, blah. Like that stuff is all true. But if there's not this deeper meaning, you know, this transcendence that's sacramental ultimately, like this actually does break through the light, does break through into the darkness on this side of death so that you can, oh, I remember why I started this story. He feels that he's not afraid to die at that moment. Hmm. And Willa Cather talks about how the young are the ones who are seduced by death, who think that like death is this liberating thing. Like why do 19 year olds go and die for their country? But you know, 60 and 70 year olds are, are terrified to die, even though they live full lives. You know what I mean? Hmm. It's hmm. The, the recklessness of youth to throw away life untasted. There's a great office of readings. Is it Maria Goretti or no, St. Agnes, one of the early martyrs, mm -hmm. how the executioners were so in awe of her to throw away life untasted. Um, she was like 12 years old or something like that. But I don't know. There's something, there's something to be said for that. Like the young soul is more willing to, and, and it, I made the connection to commitment, you know, like a 40 year old is much less likely to commit to some kind of lifelong commitment than say an 18 or a 23 year old in my experience, because you're hmm. more, you're more kind of starry eyed and idealistic. And, um, I don't know. Do you guys find that that is true? The things that I just said, <laughs> <laughs> you said many things. I said a lot. See, I, I don't, yeah, he did. Uh, I see. I don't know if I would make that like, over uh like overarching statement especially like the the fear of death like kind of the rec like the reckless abandon to it i guess i've been around um just like several older people that are like just just like were super ready kind of in their own way mm -hmm. um I don't know. So I, I might pick at that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not a and, generalizing. And I, know, I know you have too. I'm not saying that, but right. I might just, I don't know that I would like go as far like to that claim. And I'd have to think about it. I don't well, maybe, know. Maybe you just spiritualize it. And you say that there's a youthfulness of soul that I've seen in the elderly. I remember there was an old woman. She had to be in her 80s, maybe 90s. Yeah. Sure. And uh, I would go see her as she was dying and she would just sing songs to me through her like raspy she could barely breathe and talk but she always want to sing songs from when she was a little kid mm. um loved god had the simplest faith in yeah god and virgin mary and uh you know i could just see her getting carried straight to heaven had nothing no hang-ups so there was a youthfulness of soul despite her physical age um and there's there's a certain decrepit oldness even in youth, like where we're unwilling to let go of even the smallest comfort in order yeah. to have freedom. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's just like I, I guess, and maybe the stories I was thinking of, at least I like that, like a youthfulness of soul. Um, yeah, another like actually this weekend, Tom, I just thought this story was 
like hysterical, but she was talking about her, her dad. And I mean, this, this lady is very elderly, so he's been gone a while, I think. Um, but he was a devout Catholic guy and like knew, knew a lot of, maybe had a brother that was a priest. And anyway, like, um, so all these priests were coming to anoint him and see him like when he was pretty much on his deathbed. And so this, this one priest, it might even have been a, the bishop. I think it was the bishop comes and he's going through whatever. And so he's asking these questions. It's like, uh, do you renounce Satan? And I guess she still remembers this from like decades ago. And she started just cracking up when she was telling me, she was like, he just grinned at the bishop and he was like, now bishop, now's not a time to making enemies. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I was like, that guy is like (laughs) probably hours from death at that point. And just to have that, like, since i don't know that was pretty cool i thought you <laughs> well, know it's the uh, same yeah. thing with um it that story made me think of the father house story oh dude yeah i believe i don't know that he wants that yeah, out there I, yeah I, so bleep out his name yeah. there but okay. do you want me to tell you this really quick Con? Yeah. i don't want this on there but you don't want so the story house, on what's that you don't want the story on the podcast uh probably not right, let's skip yeah. it till the end then Okay. Yeah. 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 It's pretty good, but it does remind me exactly yeah. of of that for sure. Um, Father Tomek had a funny one where he used to go say mass at the nursing home, <laughs> and uh, a lot of them were, you know, Alzheimer's patients and stuff like that. But they would get wheeled into mass. You've got you guys have been to nursing home masses, I presume. Um, yes. Yes. And yeah. there's this guy in the front row, and as Father Tomek receives from the chalice, he just pipes up. Hey, no drinking on the job. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. It's like a total dad joke, but with no filter of like the appropriateness <laughs> of the spot. <laughs> well, and it's interesting to, as a, you know, as three young people to be talking, uh, to have it, to have a discussion about death and to be trying to view it and understand it from both the perspective of uh, essentially ages that we are not which means that like old people look at death senior citizens look at death uh from a totally different perspective than i mean most younger people and i think that's kind of what we're trying to get at but yeah. i've always been kind of terrified just from listening to old older people talk about the experience of getting old one of the hardest parts is everybody's dying and like all of your friends are dying. And so I, I have grandparents who are, they're up there, they're up, uh, above 80 and they go to a ton of funerals. Mm-hmm. And like, what does that do to a person who all these people that you've grown up with and have been friends with for a very long time are just dying around you? And you're like, it's coming down the track, you know? And we all have a sense of that, but um, yeah, I just the, wonder the how conversations that... are usually about medicine and surgeries and. Yeah, I mean, health problems, things like that. So just like, what does that, how does that condition a soul to be prepared for death Mm -hmm. or to fear it more? Like what it, and I'm sure it's different for, for different people, but, um, yeah, I mean, the the obvious thing there is like death is not so much in our face as young people. That's what I think. Sorry. That's maybe back to like, um, that's similar to honestly, like my prayer yesterday that I was talking about, like just kind of the the notion of like that prism or whatever, seeing it from a certain angle. But it was also like in that a recognition of I was with people who had just gone through like a really profound, like life changing threshold that I haven't been through. 
you know, like they just lost their, I, you know, their dad and like all this stuff. And it's like, you know, you just kind of like, you can go with them, but it's still like the experience is, um, exactly. Like I, you can relate in like certain ways and stuff, but it's just not, you're just with them. Like it's not yours to hold on to necessarily. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Lou Holt, I I think I sent you guys that Lou Holt speech. Yeah. Did I? That yeah, and he when was When he was at Steubenville? Yeah, and he like quipped right at the beginning. He was like, "Hey, you need to listen to me. I've been I've been 23. You haven't been 78." You know. <laughs> and uh that's very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very true. But I was more interested honestly in your whole uh thing of like a 18-year-old is more likely to make like a lifelong commitment than a 23-year-old. I've never thought about that. Yeah, I again, I think it's uh, taking the analogy of death, you know, that commitment is sort of a death to self in the sense of like all other possible futures are now uh, not possible because I'm choosing this one, you know, mm-hmm. which will bind me to a person or to God in a certain state of life until I die. Um, yeah. You know, and that's the kind of thing that that's the kind of recklessness that I feel is generally more characteristic of youth hmm. than mm-hmm. say middle age. Um, and so the catch 22 is you're saying like, well, I don't know. I need to get do like spend more time discerning or discovering myself or what I really want or really like and my preferences and mates and, and things like that to make sure we're compatible before I make that leap. But in fact, hmm. all you're doing is making yourself less capable of commitment. You're practicing fence sitting. You know what I mean? You're uh, practicing what? Sitting on the fence. You know, you, oh, fence you're just sitting. building, you're building mm-hmm. a habit of not committing. Now, particularly when you live as husband and wife in the, you know, uh, physical sense before you're actually husband and wife in the spiritual sense, you, you just, practicing having relations with someone who's not your wife um i think all this stuff leads to a culture that's just terrified of i mean could you imagine our culture and i I don't want to be like all oh millennials are so bad but could you imagine us and our peers if uh you know some nazi threat in europe uh started upsetting the order and just like everybody all of our friends signed up to go over and die I just don't think like we're our culture is capable of that right now. Um, now warfare has totally changed, but uh, you don't just throw millions of people at a at another set of millions of people anymore. But theoretically, um, you know, I think that 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 attitude of like I am ready to give my life away. I mean, my gosh, my grandpa got married and had my dad at nineteen. <laughs> I couldn't even like, I couldn't separate colors and, and whites at that time for my laundry <laughs> when I was 19. I, was, I remember calling my brother and being like, do you have to separate the colors and whites in the dryer too? <laughs> like I was, I was useless. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm always, I get that too. And I don't know. I'm just always, and not tentative isn't the right word. Reluctant? Towards it. Because there is something that it's like, and again, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Uh, even enough to say like is our culture caper over it or whatever but uh it's like there's a part of that too that like 
you just kind of step up when you need to mm-hmm. as well, you know? And so like that has to be at least factored into that. That's true. We do have heroes, certainly. Still, people do sure. throw yeah. their life at problems yep. in order to guard the safety. It was a great... I mean, the hurricanes were a great example. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people going into danger that 9-11, same thing. People going into mm-hmm. danger that didn't need to to save other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly still happens, but I guess maybe it's in my own insecurity. Like, am I capable of that? And I, I suppose if you didn't have that self-doubt, if you actually thought you were, no matter what happened, you would be brave and you'd, you're delusional, you know? You don't know until you're tested. Yeah, yeah. that's a great... Uh, I don't read him much, but I've read a couple books by... Warren Carroll, and oh, yeah. he, he wrote one, um, gosh, I can't remember, I want to say The Cross and the Crescent, but that's not it, that's what we read for Dr. Hilliard last year. The Guillotine and the Cross? Maybe. Was it the French Revolution? Maybe, and anyway, he talks about, uh, anyway, in the foreword to whatever book this is, it's just a great little line, and in like his own thinking, he said, I wrote, I wrote this book for the young people who will read it who have the hearts of martyrs that will never have like the opportunity mm. or something like that. Mm. And um, I don't know, that always just kind of like stuck out with me, of, yeah. you know, of um, like that is, that is a real thing as well. Yeah. It, um, it does. It reminds me, there was actually a really big moment when I was younger and I don't, I don't really know why this is the case, but I remember having a dream when I was younger and um, in the dream, I was being persecuted for some reason for being a Christian. And I remember that I, I basically agreed to being martyred for the faith in this dream, which I was always so terrified of. Hmm. I was very terrified of it. But I remember waking up and the first thing that I thought was, holy cow, that means that I would actually say yes if this <laughs> happened. And it was an unbelievable. Ex- I mean, I remember running into my, into my laundry room where my mom was and telling her all about it and being like super stoked because like, I think it's your question of what you just said. I think there's a lot like it was a personal insecurity that I had of, do I have a heart to, to actually give it away to have a martyr's heart, even though I know I'm not going to have the opportunity. Like I knew, you know, this is never going to happen in the United States, at least in my time, but I want to have a heart that's willing to give it, give myself away in this radical way, which when you're a kid, you like hear all these saint stories and like, oh my gosh, I could never do anything like that. Um, and how you respond in a dream is not how you respond in, in reality. So that, that doesn't even equate, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. Um, but I, I do remember kind of having that same question, at least for my kid brain and kid heart. I was so satisfied because in a sense it was answered. It, through this dream of like, no, I would respond courageously. And just how satisfying, like having that desire met. But I, I think the bigger point was as a kid, like as youngsters, um, I, I, I wanted to have the heart and I did. I wasn't sure if I if I had it or not. And I I wonder if you can generalize that to a lot of a lot of our generation is like we do ask the question, do I have the stuff? If I was called to a task, could I respond? And I, I mean, you can apply that to more dramatic situations like war and things like that. Um, but oftentimes I ask myself that just on the daily stuff. 
of like, man, sometimes I feel lazy in seminary. Like, if I'm called to task in the parish, will I be able to do it? Will I be able to step up and to serve in a much more simple, less dramatic way as a father and as a spiritual leader? Um, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's obviously still a question. Yeah. The, uh, there's just, it just made me think of this. This is a long time ago, but I lived with a guy just for like a semester towards the end of my, uh, college time. I was student teaching that, uh, he had been, he was probably 30 at the time or something like that. And, uh, he had been a focused missionary for six or seven years, I think after, after college and then was back and working and but anyway, he said that he went through like a pretty rough transition, maybe after a year two or three as a focus missionary. And he was like, yeah, I just had to, he's like, the best way I can describe it is I just had to realize like being a Catholic and being an evangelist is not going out and fighting orcs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's like, I just really wanted to do that. Yeah. And I had to realize that's not what it was, yeah, you right. know? Um Yeah. I still feel like there's there's some necessity for setting it up that way. I remember there was a talk at a focus conference once. I think was there a guy named Reyes or something or Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Doctor something. Prob Doctor Reyes. Doctor Reyes, Doctor Reyes. Uh-huh. Um He um, gave a talk about the angels. The creation of the angels, the fall of the angels, Adam and Eve, and the kind of spiritual warfare, set, like setting up the stage of like what, what salvation history was all about and what Christ's victory means and what the age of the church is as, you know, fighting this, um, this evil, which is to get us to turn away from God, like to, to or turn against him, you know, and the way you fight is not <clears throat> through aggression or violence, but it's opposites, you know, but not in a mealy-mouthed or kind of wimpy way, but in this sort of, I don't know, masculine. It appealed to the young man in me that was like, this is a way of fighting. Um, oh, yeah. I, I'm born to fight. <laughs> I think that Mike Schmitz gave a talk on, um, I, I listened to a Lent mission that he gave and it was one of them was on identity, I think. And he was talking about, he went through the Garden of Eden. And when God makes Adam, he gives him the mission of cultivating and protecting the garden, cultivating and caring for the garden, or in other words, protecting. And when the serpent comes in, the woman finds herself by herself and has to fight this battle against the dragon by herself. And he's not, he doesn't do his job of protecting uh, and, and Schmitz's point was that like, this is why every man is born with the desire to slay dragons and to protect and defend and provide and, and be a hero. Um, because it's, it's inborn. God gave us that mission, uh, in our DNA, you know, in our hearts. But the fall is where we're cowards and let the ones we are meant to protect get mowed down by the threat that we're on to protect them from. And so the two, two uh, lies that Satan oppresses man and woman with, for men, it's you're not man enough. You can't do it. 
you when it comes down to the moment you need to give your life away to save someone else, you're too much of a coward. You're not enough of a man. And the woman believes that she is not worth dying for, that there's something wrong with her as she is, that she can't be loved to the point of death as she is. So she needs to, to change herself or, or become lovable or something like that. And so all of our all of our sin, to some extent, are compensations for those two insecurities, which, I mean, I, I hesitate to sign on to any sort of reduction like that, where everything is just this, or sin is nothing but that. But boy, that seems pretty accurate, at least in my own life yeah. um, as a man. Like, I want to be enough i want to be man enough you know and that's to me like when you look at the saints john paul ii and maximilian colby or these guys that really live that um not for themselves Mm -hmm. you're like that that's the excellence for which i was born um but i don't like the reason i need reconciliation and and the eucharist and and things like that is because i'm not there and I need to be constantly reminded, like, I am capable of this. I can do better. And I may have made a mistake, yeah. but God still loves me. I'm not, I don't believe the lie that I'm not enough of a man. Um, I am enough of a man, but I need grace to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. And that's, it's part of like cultivating what you might call like a mature imagination as well like based on experience and whatever like war like whether it be like reading history or something like orcs in lord of the rings and things like that is to see more and more that like and i think like even going back to my buddy's point of like it didn't look like he what he thought it was going to look like but i think as you mature you see that um like that fight, that battle is played out on just what can look like such ordinary circumstances. So it's almost like reality just drips with meaning at that point because that's where it is really lived out at. Um, and I totally, I mean, I, I resonate deeply with the St. Max and uh, JP2 and it's like you see those guys and you're like, man, that is it. Like, that's what I want to be. Even if, and I think you can say that like very confidently, even if, you you know, that's not going to be played out on like a world stage in your lifetime, you know? Um, It's like, no, that's still it, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is super cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing specifically with uh, surrounding death. Um, Like when when we were talking about the differences of looking at the death of an old person as a young person or, yeah, I mean, the death of folks from generations past, um, even within my own experience, like how I see death and how I have experienced it. Um, I, I know that at least one thing that I'm uh, have a deficit in within the experience of death is I don't think I can look back in my life and see any type of experience with like someone actually dying that I'm present there for or close to or 
um, besides like helping with uh, funerals in, in a parish where you don't really know the person. Other than that, all of my experiences with death have been somewhat dramatic and hmm. like fairly impactful. And I know that that's not the case across the board, that there's a lot of deaths where the person just kind of passes and it's not necessarily dramatic or in a hospital or at a crime scene or in some tragic car accident, which is most of my experiences with death. <coughs> and, um, and so like, yeah, having, having the wisdom to be able to look at it through these different prisms, like being able to see it from different angles. I, I definitely relate to that because I feel like I've only seen it in a specific way. Yeah. Um, that's not true to the rest of, um, to the rest of life. Like I've had a lot of other experiences of life in both a simple fashion and a very dramatic fashion that have more depth and probably more truth to reality. Whereas my experience with death has only been in a very dramatic, oftentimes extreme, like, holy cow. Hmm. Um, is it always like this? No, but that's, that's been my, my take on it. That's been my look at death. Um, so I, I can't remember why I started saying that. Oh yeah. No, lost it. <laughs> uh, lost it. It was something with, um, y'all were talking about orcs. Well, there it goes. Orcs. Could it be about elves? elves what about dwarves? Balrogs. Hobbits. Mm. Ring wraiths. We should talk next. I don't know if think we have time this time, but uh, I would like to understand more on, at least in like narratives, the notion of archetypes. Um, I, that just made me think of honestly, just not anything of what we talked to till this point. But I listened to this. Uh, well, I've been rereading just for fun the uh, Harry Potter books, which has been pretty cool. But realizing, because uh, I haven't read them since I was a teenager, but realizing that um, just the writing is like pretty good. The author was pretty steeped like in the classics. So a lot of like the figures have these kind of like Greek and mythical like qualities to them, that, even in the names that she incorporates. Anyway, and then I listened to this Art of Manliness podcast about, um, I don't know what it's called, but it's a fairly recent one on archetypes and how... There's pretty much like social theories now that like you just fit into a certain archetype of like a narrative structure for your life. And so this guy's like a clinical psychologist and he's like, yeah, you just like people just fit into one of these like few archetypes of what a man or woman hmm. is. And then like it just plays out like like that, um, which I mean, in some way, I'm not like fully subscribing, but in some ways it's kind of compelling anyway um or at least interesting what's an example of an archetype well it'd be like um like very basically uh uh it i think anyway an archetype would be like if uh like teddy roosevelt would be an archetype of like a man's man in today's world mm. but going back further you would get archetypes from like the Iliad and the Odyssey, Gilgamesh, kind of like the original Your Achilles you know, stories, and stuff like that. Right, like the the original narratives, which is similar to like what, um, like a modern day telling, 
version of it would be like what Joseph Campbell did with the Star Wars stuff is like all of these, which he would subscribe to somebody before him of like, like all of these ancient religions kind of point to the same thing, like the same oneness, which you get in these ancient stories. Um, anyway, I, it's not like formulated enough to catch me up. Did Joseph Campbell write Star Wars? He didn't write it. He influenced it, I think, huh. pretty majorly. Yep. Did George mm-hmm. Lucas write it? I don't know who wrote it, actually. Huh. I don't know. Um, but I, I'm I almost, don't, I'm I like, don't know. I remember in a, maybe middle school or early high school going over what an archetype was. But if I had to make my best guess of what I remember from that time, it's like you take a particular story like the Odyssey or something like that. And um, that particular story becomes sort of an overarching. It's universalizable. The particular is universalizable. Like there's a particular story with particular characters. And then those particular characters become sort of universal. Yes. Archetypes for a thing, you know, courage or justice or whatever. Yeah. No, I think you could. So, like, Three Dogs North is like the archetype of podcasts. Like every other podcast, right. yeah, mm-hmm. is basically just a you know bad copy of us, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Or that that's more of a platonic form. Maybe we're the platonic form of podcast. Ugh, who knows? I, I you know I don't want to be too humble, but I don't know if it's platonic form or archetype. I literally don't know. Like that's it. I mean, I was I was saying I want to talk about that at some point. Yeah. Like I want to read on it and well, that's I our don't. mo. We we do talk about things we don't know about. So no, yeah, is... and the, also our mo, which I feel like we've we've kind of gotten away from, at least neglected. Um, some just self love, mm-hmm. some <laughs> self affirmation, yeah. self acknowledgement yeah. of of the reality of our awesomeness mm-hmm. is really what it is at its core. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. We have fallen behind in that. Mm-hmm. I, I also remember I really liked when I don't know who it was, but the guy that gave us a three star review, we really chastised him. Yeah, we yeah a lot. It was, I believe uh, it was Dave yeah. Singleton. It was <laughs> no 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 no. I think it was. Um, I'm sure it was Dave Singleton. Maeve Bingleton. <laughs> yeah, because remember we never got his name right. Oh yeah. Was that we would Dirk, always Dirk m- misname him? Dan, Dan, uh, Dan, Dan Ringle Wrangle. Yeah. <laughs> Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And fear down.